Welcome to Lasso Lessons. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Kathy Buckman. And today we're talking about season three, episode three of Ted Lasso, four, five, one. We opened to Fastballs, Was I Out of My Head? And this is one of those 90s bands that was popular, but somehow I don't know much about. We see Colin rising in the morning and putting on his clothes, clearly from the night before. And as he makes his way down the stairs to the kitchen, we already know that he is not home, but rather at someone else's house of a lover, we assume. But the big reveal is that this paramour is another man. We will only later learn that his name is Michael. This is one of those things I think that Ted Lasso does so well. We assume we sort of know a character, but then we are asked to rethink who they are. Dr. Sharon in the previous season fits the bill here. We sort of take it for granted that she can be a bit distant, even severe. It's only as the season progresses that we begin to see why she might be the way she is and who she actually is. We have known Colin is not certain of his place, especially on the team. Dr. Sharon has given him a mantra, basically that he's good enough. And on the other side of the spectrum, we've seen Nate, who seems to suffer some of the same insecurities, a feeling of not quite belonging, actually use Colin's insecurities against him. Now we see what might at least be partly at root for Colin. He seems to be gay. Now, you might say gay in London in the 2020s, maybe not so horrible. But I think we have to remember that being gay is still a bit stigmatized in professional sports. And while I'm almost certain that most of the players on, say, an EPL team are not raging homophobes, there's just a broader sense in which being gay is kind of looked down in the professional sporting community. Yeah. Being out at work is where we could go with this. Mike, you and I were early career professionals during the era of don't ask, don't tell, which at the time felt like progress, though now we look back on it and don't really feel that much affection for it. Don't ask, don't tell famously was the policy adopted by the military under Bill Clinton, which said that rather than being kicked out of the military for being openly gay, as long as you hit it, you were allowed to stay. And I remember in the early stages of my career, seeing both sides of this when I was an academic, it felt like everybody was out who wanted to be out. It didn't seem to have a lot of stigma. But then I went to work in a professional workplace in Atlanta, Georgia in the late 90s. And I don't remember anybody being out, which of course doesn't mean nobody was gay. It just meant it was sort of a don't ask, don't tell kind of place. And that surprised me. I think we can celebrate how much progress has been made, but professional sports is still a place where being gay is not a very comfortable thing to be in many cases. Yeah, if you think about that subsequent scene in the locker room where all the players are discussing Zava and the team begins to talk about how Zava's charisma transcends typical sexual orientations, and it leads to Colin joshingly admitting that he'd have sex with Zava, this whole joke he's making rests on the whole notion that it, it's impossible that any of them are gay. And I think that's the sort of stigma that Colin faces. It's not overt and hostile. It's just keeping him down. It's keeping him from expressing who he truly is. Yeah, I agree. I do like how they end this opening. Colin wishes Michael a safe flight to Dubai. We assume that Michael's a, a business person. And Michael, in return, wishes Colin safe driving, which suggests he knows just a bit about Colin. And we've seen struggles a little bit with his uh, fancy sports car. And sure enough, Colin dons his aviators climbs into that fancy sports car, recites the mantra that Dr. Sharon taught him, I'm a strong and capable man, and immediately slams into the garbage cans outside Michael's house. Yes, we're going to see some of Colin's challenges, but this show's not going to 
stop having some fun at his expense nonetheless. We now find ourselves in the clubhouse as the coaching staff discusses how they will handle the introduction of Zava into the starting lineup. We got to make this fella part of the team, Ted says, setting up a major thread of narrative that will run through several episodes to come. And we get a lot of clues that that will not be easy, including the fact that Zava gets his own branded corner of the locker room. As this all leads up to the big debut of Zava at Richmond, he just doesn't show up. Why do we put up with this lunatic, Rebecca demands, forgetting that she'd been warned by Higgins and others? Keely replies, because as humans, we accommodate genius. Turns out he's in Rebecca's office and he greets each of the club's leaders in strangely obscure and yet compelling ways. When he visits the clubhouse, Danny calls him an angel, to which Jan Moss replies, he's clearly a god. <laughs> it's funny because Jan Moss is always the straight shooter. So when we hear him deifying Zaba, we, we know that there's something to it. Yeah, I think a lot of the humor comes from watching people being starstruck. And there's a great repeated physical joke here where Zava keeps stepping in front of Ted, including him as Ted uh, tries to take control of the locker room. As he leads him in a breathing exercise, he says, we are now one. There is no me. There is no you. There is only the we and the us and the we and us. Uh, and there's a bit of naughty wordplay here that if you didn't catch, ask a 14-year-old. You got it right, Kathy? Not totally. I guess, is it weenus? Yeah. I, I'm just yes. not getting it. There you got it. You got okay. it. <laughs> in, in kind of a side story that was foreshadowed in the previous episode, Rebecca visits a psychic, Tish, who her mom has referred her to. You know, in some sense, it seems very un-Ted Lasso, a show that seems very down to earth, but the psychic is full of jokes. And despite Rebecca's skepticism, the psychic would rather comically spell out a tale of green matchbooks in a storm. And she even says, you're going to have a family. You're going to be a mother, she tells Rebecca. And Rebecca finds this last prophecy simply cruel. And since we know that Rebecca really has wanted children, children that Rupert denied her, and that she is now single, and like all of us, not getting any younger, she may simply feel that her time has passed. But of course... There's a very old literary tradition of prophecies playing out in surprising ways, often around births. Uh, it goes all the way back to Sophocles and Oedipus and Shakespeare and Macbeth. And we have seen how Shakespeare's plays especially have been an inspiration for Ted Lasso. So perhaps some of these prophecies are going to come true in ways that might surprise us. That seems like a pretty sophisticated, but I think strong prediction. Gilly meets with the team to prepare them for press interviews on the subject of Zava joining the team. And when Roy shows up, this sort of becomes a substitute for the press conferences that have been the hallmark of the midsection of almost every episode of Ted Lasso. Here's Keeley's friend and now employee Shandy asks Roy why he dumped Keeley. And then we return back to Roy and Coach Beard and Beer has returned Back to Inverting the Pyramid, a book we saw him reading in one of the very first scenes, the very first episode of season one on the plane as he and Ted made their way to London. And this will become important. What he's trying to do is trying to figure out how to include Zava in the lineup. Jamie and then Roy enter, and Jamie suggests that they don't really need Zava as he's a self-involved jerk. And this becomes a little bit of a joke here between Beard and Jamie, of whether he's being ironic or hypocritical. Yeah, I'm going to have some stuff to say about this later. And remember, before the game, as they get into the locker room now, we'll see on the board a 4-5-1. That's the title of this episode. You'll remember that earlier in the season, 
the team was using at Roy's suggestion a 4-4-2 formation uh, where they have four defenders, four midfielders, and two strikers, Jimmy and Danny up front. It's a kind of standard formation. Roy suggests that's something they'll know well since they've been doing it since they were kids. Now they're moving to a 4-5-1 where they have four defenders, but now five midfielders and then one up front, Zava, which means that Jamie and Danny have to fall back. It means that Colin's actually going to be removed from the starting lineup. And a side note here, in the book that Beard was reading in the very first episode that we've called out, The Miracle of Castel de Sangro, and we actually catch a glimpse of this again on his desk, the team there falls back on a 4-5-1, much to the author's significant and repeated displeasure because he feels it's an overly defensive formation. But it's explained by Roy and the coaching staff that the point is not for this to be a defensive formation, but to provide as much service as possible in as many situations as possible to Zava. Get it to him. Let him score. Kick all corners to him. He takes all the penalty shots. As the team leaves for the pitch for the game, Ted calls his son Henry before Henry's own big game back in the States. This leads him to discover that the Jake that Henry had told him earlier in the season was Michelle's new boyfriend is, in fact, Dr. Jacob Bryanson, the couples therapist that he and Michelle had sought help from before Ted's departure to London. You remember that he had thought that his therapist took Michelle's side of things too often. Yeah, and we now find out that that was foreshadowing that Dr. Jacob and Michelle were developing some kind of rapport in those sessions. On the pitch, despite promising Jamie that he would find him, on basically the very kickoff, Zava scores from the halfway line. Seemingly nearly impossible, but just an indication of things to come. And we jump right now into a montage of Zava scoring impossible seeming goals, resulting in a big win streak for Richmond and just generally rising fortunes. And we see in the montage all sorts of furtherances of many different narrative threads, the way that Ted Lasso writers are so good at doing we see Net fretting at West Ham. We see Sam's restaurant opening and maybe a new love interest there. Rebecca finding a green matchbook. We remember green matchbooks. Colin texting with Michael and Ted scouring the Facebook for pictures of Dr. Jacob. Well, of course, drinking too much. The music here, by the way, under the montage is by Adriano Celentano, the Italian musician, singer, composer, actor, filmmaker. And this song was meant to show how American singers sound to non-English speakers. There's a fun video out there with Salentano and his wife, who you hear singing on this, his longtime wife, actress Claudia Mori. Yeah, I really like this montage. I think, you know, montages are somewhat cliche, but I think Ted Lasso does them with particular skill. And I appreciate when you get to hear the whole song. And I think you do get to hear almost the whole song here. The montage ends with an amazing bicycle kick by Zaba, of course. And as the announcers declared a godlike goal, the theme from Jesus Christ Superstar kicks in. And Jamie looks up at a shirtless ascended Zaba, only to see a fullback tattoo of Zaba himself from the back, raising his arms to the heavens. It's a great visual joke. Yeah. And I love the look on Phil Dunster's face of sort of puzzlement. In the episode's final quarter or so, the team celebrates at Sam's restaurant. I was especially impressed with the mood that they created in the scene with the camera work, which is much more fluid than we see on Ted Lasso and some amazing blocking people moving within frame, within, without a frame, revealing things that are happening. Uh, a lot is said with looks instead of words. 
And now Colin has made a really interesting choice to invite Michael to his party. He introduces him as his wingman. And Michael goes into a parodic version of what this might entail for a professional footballer, how easy this job might be if Colin weren't so bad at hitting on women, I guess. I mean, I guess it's a joke, and yet it's revealing in some ways at the same time. Roy approaches a despondent Jamie in the corner, and we haven't really spoken much about this, but one of the running jokes since the introduction of Zava is that Danny pretty much worships the Eurostar while Jamie is clearly envious of him and rather put off by some of his antics. Roy offers to train Jamie in order to make him competitive with Zava. This is yet another step in their changing relationship from really enemies in the first season all the way to being aligned here in purpose. Yeah, I love this, actually. I'm looking forward to the Roy and Jamie scenes to come. Another thing that happens at the restaurant, Shandy proves her worth. And then Kathy, you had made the case that Keely isn't just hiring Shandy to keep her company. And here, just as she had been with Roy earlier in the episode, she very forthrightly insists that Zava shows some love on the socials. And Zava, again, in his strange, obscure way, says, I really like your energy. It's very off-putting. <laughs> <laughs> so... We see now the value in many ways. Shandy is the opposite of Keely, right? Keely is, is very diplomatic in her approach. Shandy, as Rebecca notes previously, and Keely repeats here, that they love how not shy she is, right? She's able to cut through things and get right to it. And this is the way you've got to work with Zaba. Yeah, I'm going to have more to say about Shandy and how she's fitting in. Finally, Sam hands out commemorative matchbooks. And sure enough, as Rebecca realizes, they are green. So it's interesting that this green matchbook is coming from Sam, who she has you know, previously broken up with. Yeah. And I think in screenwriting, this would be called a MacGuffin at this point, maybe. An object that is asked to hold some kind of symbolic weight and that characters seek for, run from, seek to find or not find. I heard about MacGuffin first from George Lucas, actually. He said it was his job every time that he wrote a Raiders of the Ark script with Steven Spielberg, he had to come up with the MacGuffin, which is what's the thing that everybody's trying to find. As the party winds down, we follow Trent out of the restaurant into the sadly late and undeniably great Leonard Cohen crooning, everybody knows, Trent sees Colin and Michael making out in a nearby alley. And since Trent is writing a book, the lyric here to me almost seems like a threat. Now everyone will know. It's interesting because earlier, as the coaches were discussing who to move out of the starting lineup, when Colin's name is floated, Roy suggests that Colin is a chameleon. And I thought I saw the ever slightly raising of the eyebrows of Trent in that moment, almost like he sort of already knows that Colin uh, may not be as straight as he's trying to appear. All right. So that is our rundown of season three, episode three, four, five, one. Kathy, I'm sure you've brought some themes you want to discuss today. You know I have. I would say there are three things I'd like to talk about. The first theme I think is pretty relatable. It has to do with Shandy in this case. And it's about how do you learn a new job? So once you have a new role, you need to learn how to do it. So what we see in this episode is Shandy shadowing Keely. There are lots of ways to learn a new job, but shadowing is a particularly effective one. You 
essentially just follow around the person whose role you're trying to learn and watch what they do and do what they do. It's an immediate, unfiltered, experiential way to learn a job. And if you like details, it's a great way to learn a job from the details up. And I will say here, I admire how game Shandy is and seemingly unfazed by people assuming that she's just there because she's Keely's friend. She seems to have an inner confidence and motivation that she really does want to learn this job and get good at it. And Mike, as you pointed out in the recap, Shandy's encouragement to Zava to promote the club on his socials is very direct. And it's probably the right way to get the attention of somebody like Zava. I do have one thing, though, I wonder about. If you're going to learn how to do a job by shadowing, the person that you're shadowing needs to essentially almost have a talk track going where they're explaining the rules to you and helping you understand and process what you're seeing. And I wonder a little bit about how much Keely may be omitting that part of the process and not really supervising Shandy and explaining the rules to her. And I am imagining that this is even more difficult for Keely because Keely and Shandy are friends. There's a role here that Keely is playing that we would call supervision. We talked about supervision back in season two, episode eight, Man City, where supervision is where you teach somebody how to do something that you know how to do. And it has a somewhat negative ring for some people, but it's a really important way to help others learn. But my sense here is it's possible that their friendship in this case may be making it hard for Keely to correct Shandy and to tell her when she's out of bounds. Yeah, I also think that in some ways, as I was noting above, Shandy's an interesting corrective to some of the struggles Keely faces in that she is overly sensitive to other people's needs and she's extremely diplomatic. Like she likes the fact that Shandy can cut through things. And so you're probably right. She shouldn't just be letting her go rogue all the time. On the other hand, A, she likes it and B, it's funny. <laughs> so, Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very funny. I think you're right. Some of it may be intentional that Keely sees the power of having somebody with a very different style than hers as part of her organization. I have just a guess that Keely can give very direct feedback to people, but I'm wondering if Shandy might be one of the people where it's harder for her to do. I, th I think we're going to find out. All right. What else you got for us? Okay. Now we're going to talk about something we talked about way back in season one, which is essentially how people react when there's a new, talented team member. And this definitely feels like a repeat. We talked a lot about Jamie in season one as the star player and all the dynamics of other people reacting to the star player. Also, we talked about the ways in which Danny's arrival kind of displaced Jamie. And it does seem to me like this is, is like an uh, escalated version of that story again. Another great player on your team is tough, but imagine having a superstar in your team. It's just a whole nother level. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is a very similar dynamic. You imagine it's very common in sports that sometimes you're a star player, sometimes you're not. There are levels of stars. But we do have a repetition of the same set of dynamics where you generally would expect that some people will feel threatened by a star player and try to protect their territory somewhat. And, you know, it's funny that Jamie is now really on the other side of this equation, seeing Zava, the superstar, and just feeling put off and feeling critical of Zava. 
Now, in the scene that we were talking about before, it really does seem like Jamie is lacking in self-awareness when he calls Zava a self-absorbed glory hunter who only cares about himself. And Coach Beard points out that there's something a little ironic about those words coming out of Jamie's mouth. But Jamie freely admits that he's being hypocritical. And so maybe his remarks aren't just about his own insecurity. Maybe, as they say, it takes one to know one. And Jamie might be offering an important warning that people probably should be listening to. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this episode is that he does say, no, I wasn't being ironic. I was being hypocritical. And then Ted points out, isn't it kind of ironic that Coach Beard correcting Jamie was wrong or not quite as accurate as Jamie was? Later on in the episode, Roy, in talking about Zava, will call him a pre-Madonna instead of a pre-Madonna. And Jamie corrects him, again, in this notion of self-sidedness, absorbedness, and so forth. For some reason, Jamie seems smart in this. Usually you would expect Jamie to be having his language corrected, not Roy. But Jamie knows something about pre-Madonnas. He knows something about glory hunters. And so maybe this is an indication, as you're saying, that this is the area in which he actually does know a lot. Yeah. I think that we are being asked to think in this moment that it is possible that Jamie has made a leap in some self-awareness, or at least this is an area where his intuition should be trusted. I think there is an arc for Jamie here in season three, and this feels like an important piece of where it might be going. Great. And usually you have a third point for us. Oh, yes, I do. Um, it's a tricky one, and I'm not even sure how to talk about this one, but what does it mean when somebody is uncoachable? In the workplace, there are people who just don't really follow the rules or they're so self-directed that attempts to manage them and steer them just kind of bounce off. I will have some self-awareness in this moment and note that in the middle part of my career, I actually think I was one of these people. I didn't really understand what it meant to have a manager. And I sort of took most of what they said to me is suggestions. And I think I drove some of my managers a little bit nuts. Honestly, I probably was a little uncoachable. So what does it mean to have Zava land into the dynamics of this team? And is he an example of somebody who is potentially uncoachable? It's interesting because I think learning to accept feedback and then learning to act on it, of course, is something that hopefully you grow with, with time. It's interesting because I think that in some sense, Zava actually has accepted a little coaching. He got it from Rebecca, right? Which is, hey, you're going to go to a club that's already great and you're just going to make it a little bit better. That's not amazing. Come to our club and do this. So, you know, he did hear her and he said, you know, that is an interesting turn in my career. So he has shown some signs of being coachable, but that it's through that direct thing. He also responds to Shandy is coaching in a very clear way. The people who are super direct with him seem to get his attention. I think it's going to be harder for Ted with his inclusive style to do this. And again, think about that thing where Ted's standing there and Zava keeps stepping in front of him and Ted moves and Zava steps in front of him again. That is mm -hmm. kind of a visual metaphor for the challenge that Ted's going to face. I completely agree that in this case, Zava does seem to be one of these uncoachable people who you could never really look at as a team player. And honestly, that's what Ted's all about. He's all about the team. He's all about making people into team players. He's all about getting the team to add up to be more than the sum of its parts. And that is just not 
a mode that I think Zava does. Let's look at the case here, all right? On the plus side for Zava, I would say he has this sort of off-kilter social affect that really makes people feel special. He's a disarming charisma unicorn, Jan Moss says. And so Zava says to Ted, mold me. He says to Leslie, you are the glue. He says to Will, your passion is why I play. Then, as you noted, he has this funny speech where he says there is only we and us, as if he's a team player. Yeah. I don't know if we can trust this because there's a lot of counter evidence on the negative side. Sava is chronically late. He reorders all the magnets on the board to suit his liking and put himself in the front. He comes and goes on his own schedule. He walks right into the middle of the team huddle and takes over. He steals a goal from Jamie. And then, of course, that tattoo of the goal celebration on his back. It all seems to add up to somebody who's really self-absorbed. And if he takes any feedback, if he takes any coaching, it's going to be because it suits his own self-interest. But is there any upside to that? That's a good question. Yeah. I do feel like the one thing that has resulted so far from Zava's arrival as the disruptive star is that he is inspiring Jamie to want to try a little bit harder. So that might be a positive outcome that comes from all of this. The thing that kind of popped into my head as I was watching all the, the Zava antics was now that the strategy for the whole team in every match is give the ball to Zava under all circumstances, it sort of reminds me of the idea of the 10x coder. This may be a phrase that's familiar to some people. If you're a software engineer writing lines of code, there's this belief that some coders are just so much better than other coders that what they're producing is actually 10 times as efficient, powerful, what have you. And it made me wonder, is this real? Mike, you've worked with a lot of development. Is it real? Well, I think actually, you know, now people talk about 100x or even 1,000x. And as we move into AI, people are talking about a million x coders. As software has become ever more ubiquitous in our world and as the systems become ever more complex, I think the people who especially work on the architecture of the system, work on things that involve stability and speed, they can make decisions that will affect everybody else, all the other coders, affect everybody who's using the system and, and can carry on for years and years. So I do think that there is something to this. I think probably the more standard notion, more broadly outside coding is the 80-20 rule. The idea that 20% of the people do 80% of the work or do 80% of the creative work in, in this organization. I don't know if that's exactly the right formulation, but it definitely seems like, in my experience, that I hate to say it, but it, it definitely seems to be true. Yeah, I really feel like that's where I'm going with this in my head. What we do on this podcast is we take Ted Lasso and we try to create analogies to the work world that we're all familiar with. If you take professional sports, like somebody on a baseball team might hit 40 home runs in a season and somebody else might hit five. So you can see right there in the metrics that somebody is producing more offense than somebody else. In the work world, though, it's much more invisible, you know, unless you're working in sales and there's some sort of leaderboard or something, it's hard to really know how much people are contributing. Your 80-20 comment, Mike, I remember somebody at one organization once telling me that 10% of the people on his team fixed all the problems and were essentially the people who saved the day 
every time. And when I heard the story, I thought it sounded like a sad state of affairs. But, you know, maybe that is kind of fundamentally how it can work. Or maybe even that's how it always works. I don't know. So if Zava can perform at the level that he seems to be performing here, all of his antics will be worth it. And in fact, that's actually why he's able to do them, we believe, right? Because if you're the 10x coder or you're the incredible superstar who's going to score goals that nobody else could, I guess you get to get away with it. Well, on that mixed note... That's season three, episode three of Ted Lasso 451. Coming up, we have season three, episode four, Big Week. 